Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Helmut Walzer-Smith as a guest. He is Martha Rivers Ingram Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. And today, we'll discuss his most recent book, entitled Germany, A Nation in Its Time. This book appeared with, Live right, with a LiveRight Publishing Corporation, a division of W.W. W. Norton, in 2020. The book is a masterful study by a well-renowned scholar. There is something in this book for both specialists, but also a general readership. I know I've been reading the book, or I read the book, as I've been putting together some of my online course modules as we prepare in higher ed for a semester like no other. And it was a true pleasure to be able to take breaks from this very difficult work and really enjoy uh, a masterful synthesis such as this one. I'd also like to just pause for a second and recognize that I know that this has been a very difficult time in higher ed for a lot of people. I know that not all of our listeners are university professionals, but many of them are. I know we're looking at a very difficult semester in an uncertain time. I also know a lot of colleagues have lost their jobs. Please know as we conduct this interview, it might sound like business as usual, but we're, no, we're fully aware that it's not. In many ways, escaping into a great book like this one is a nice way to remind ourselves of all the reasons that we went into higher education in the first place. Okay, without any further pre- preamble, hello, Helmet. How are you today? And welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Uh, uh, I'm doing fine, and uh, thank you for your uh, your introductory comments. Excellent. So, to start out with our interview, I was wondering, uh, Helmut, if you could discuss some of your interests in the field of uh, German studies and how all of it started. Uh, this is a real typical opener for the New Books Network, and someone uh, whose work I've really read and taught since I was a graduate student. Um, but I realized that I actually don't know much about how you became such a fixture in the field. So I thought our audience would find it interesting if you could share a little bit of your professional biography. Well, I don't have a story that starts from when I was very young and was destined to do this. Uh, I know this because when I was a senior in college at Cornell University, in one week I both interviewed for Morgan Stanley and the Peace Corps. So I was like many <laughs> students at that age, not really quite sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I did go away uh, for a year actually to Germany and I worked in kitchens and factories um, and I did miss something very much and that something was writing uh, and in particular writing history. So I just started doing it and I had wonderful professors as an undergraduate, uh, among them Isabel Hall. Dominic Lacapra, and an American historian named Michael Kamen. Um, and that's how I got, that's how I applied to graduate school. I realized in that year away what I really like to do. 
And that I've been at it ever since. Um, I did my graduate work at Yale University in the late 80s. It was a time when we all did nation state history. And even within nation state history, we, um, uh, we divided up our periods quite stringently. I worked on the imperial period, which more or less ended in 1914, even though it ends in 1918. Um, <laughs> just to give you an idea of how sort of how we diced up the field back then. And I wrote some uh, work in it. And as you know, and also in the history of, of religion. Um, and then slowly I um, became interested uh, perhaps after I wrote The Butcher's Tale, which is a still my most successful book commercially, uh, and I think in terms of how many people actually read it, um, I started to think about what to do next. And um, I remember uh, reading Jürgen Osterhammer's book. And Osterhammer, uh, actually not the book that everyone is now reading, but an earlier version, I wrote a long review of it, and I was actually very excited about his ability to range across fields. Uh, and I felt that was remarkable, but I also felt I couldn't do it. Um, and the reason I couldn't do it is that while my French is ser serviceable and my German is okay, uh, is, 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 you know, I use it all the time. Um, I didn't have enough languages to do global history. So I thought, there's an there's there are two axes. One can go out, and one can drill down, so to speak, <laughs> chronologically. And that's when I started thinking about um, what I think of very much as a new investment in my career, and that is the investment in the long the long durée. So that is a very brief um, kind of intro to where I see myself. Uh, I, that's the context in which I wrote the continuities of German history, uh, in which I edited the Oxford Handbook. And ultimately, the big one for me was, of course, this book here. Great. Um, and I was wondering, uh, is there, uh, that kind of gives us a, the general outlines of how you came to write uh, this particular book. Um, is there more to the intellectual origin story of this project? I mean, it's uh it's obviously a massive thing to undertake and uh, kind of how did you uh, how did you conceive maybe of writing something that's, you know, quite quite this long and dealt with, uh, you know, <laughs> such a sweeping period? Well, it was part of thinking backwards for me um, when I began to do this work, I fell uh, or I discovered uh, a map. Uh, this map is a map that is, I discuss in the book uh, by Erhard Etzlaub. It's uh, called the Rome Way map. And I think of it as the first actually accurate map of Germany. It was made in 1500. And there are a number of things that I didn't understand about this map. And, and I, I, I think that some of my projects uh, have, and I think the best of my projects have been motivated by me as a historian not understanding something. And this was such a moment. Um, so I didn't understand the South-oriented uh, aspect of the map. This is a map of Germany with Rome at the top. 
but that was clear enough uh, to figure out. Uh, what was more interesting to me, or at least was it, what was especially interesting to me as a historian of nationalism, was that the map maker, uh, Etzlaub, told the painters in the workshops to paint the nation's different colors. Uh, so when you look at a painted version of it, or at least an early painted version, you'll see that France is one country and Germany another and Italy a third and so on and so forth. And that surprised me. Um, and it surprised me because in terms of politics, that's not so given for one. It was not quite the Holy Roman Empire, though it was somewhat close. Um, and the books that I had grown up with as a historian of nationalism, um, or came of age with, I guess would be better, as a historian of nationalism, all emphasized the late origins of modern nations. Uh, Ernest Gellner's famous formulations, it's the nationalists who make nations, not the reverse, all put um, the making of nations, the conception of nations fairly late uh, in the game. And here was a map from 1500. And then, of course, I started to dig. I was interested. Are there more such things? And indeed, there are. And I thought about another sentence and an equally, in fact, more important book for me anyways, and that was Ben Anderson's Imagined Communities. And the sentence goes something like this. Um, we have to imagine nation and nationalism. He always slipped between the two um, in terms of the style in which they were imagined at the time. And then I said, okay, well, if that's right, then this is the style in which they imagine. Um, mm. And so I thought that's an interesting thing to see for me. I didn't understand it like that before. And so I became a kind of amateur early modernist and read deeply in the field and tried to get it right. It took me a long time. It's a the bridge between the modern, like, you know, post 1800 and the early modern is actually larger than one typically thinks. And, uh, but I spent a long time working at it. And my initial idea was to take these cultural imaginings and, sort of follow the story from 1500 uh, to the present. And I didn't at the time know if this would be a brilliant, <laughs> you know, Benedict Anderson type, you know, 150 page book, or if it would be the book that it was. And um, uh, so that's really the, the sort of, origin moment. There are points in that story, too, where things change dramatically for me. But that's really the other origin moment, I would say. Um, that, that's interesting. And I think uh, that answer really gives our audience uh, a deep sense of the tremendous ambition behind the book that it became, <laughs> if that's not uh, necessarily what you knew you were going to do when you started. Um, and I think it would be really interesting for the sake of the interview uh, to have you talk a little bit about how using this um, 500 year chronology allowed you to make some new types of arguments. And just, I, I'd really like to give you the chance to say, uh, you know, 
some of the main overarching things that you think um, the book is doing here by taking this kind of unique chronological perspective. And you started to get into it already, I know, but uh, I just wanted to give you the chance to build on that a little bit. Thank you. So what was very important for me is to, um, with that starting point, with this map as a starting point, I wanted to... I didn't want to just write a history of the German nation just because that was a starting point. Um, what I wanted to do was to see the, the changes. So what I came to understand is, of course, that there were very important distinctions. Uh, I sometimes call them almost epistemologies in how nations were understood over this long time period. So even though the term is the same, and roughly speaking, the space is the same, roughly speaking, the cities are the same, and the towns are the same, I came to argue that there are deep fundamental, deep and fundamental breaks between different conceptions of the nation in certain points of time. Um, And so I had to figure out how to narrate this as one project, which is about one thing that takes on very different shapes. And so the first argument and the most important argument really is about the changing morphology of of nationhood. Part of that argument is that this is really a book about nationhood in which nationalism is an important, crucial chapter, but it's not the thing itself. And when I came to think of it that way, I began to think that nationalism is not the end point of nation thinking is not the apex of the story, is not the tragic end of the story, as you might say in the German case. So when I started to think about that, it actually gave me a different way to talk about um, Germany as a nation before nationalism, Germany as a nation during the long period of nationalism, but also nationalism as I work it out in the book, has itself distinct phases. But then also, and this was the argument that a lot of people were more resistant to, um, and it's you know it speaks to the fact that we're not at the end of this long durée, um, how the nation develops after the most extreme nationalism, and maybe even at some point after nationalism. So that's maybe the most important argument for myself in the book. And that's the the argument that took me a lo- an embarrassingly long while to, <laughs> to figure out. Uh, it seems in retrospect so simple, but um, it just, there are lots of hurdles against, against doing it. Um, so uh, I eventually did it. And here I would say one of our, our esteemed colleagues, uh, uh, Jim Sheehan was really important because there was a certain point in the book, fairly late on, uh, that he 
said, you know, I'd be happy to look at drafts. And he, his criticism of the book was at that point is, is that it was reads very well, very interesting, but it, it also reads like separate studies. So it was very important to me um, to figure out a way to answer his criticism. This took me a few more years. One sentence for him, uh, <laughs> two or three more years for me. And, <laughs> and it was it was really how to bring this together under one, and I hope in a way, compelling uh, narrative. So, and that's that's what that is. Then there are subsidiary arguments, uh, some of which are very important to me too. And one has to do with war. Um, I'm not going to go through all, all of them, but one certainly has to do with the relationship of peace and war uh, in the long durée. Because I started working the numbers um, using this wonderful source called the Conflict Catalog. And I noticed that there are very long peace periods in Germany or periods of relative peace, relative both to other periods and relative to other European nations like France and Germany. I'm sorry, like France and England or or Russia. And so I started to say to myself, you have to take those peace periods or periods of relative peace more um more seriously, and ra- rather than shoehorn them into the usual sort of rise of Prussia uh, militarism narrative. And that, too, is an important uh, argument for me, because especially when you deal with the post-war period, you are dealing with a country which some would say belongs to the least militarist uh, countries uh, of, of, you know, of a of a certain leading countries in the world, and so how to how to bring that in into a longer narrative was something of great importance to me, but it was also something that the documents were all there for. So um, I, that also became an argument that was very uh, dear to me. All right, now that uh, you, you've given us that nice. Uh you know, summary of some of the, the, the big ideas here, I have to uh, address before we go any further, the role that maps play in the book. And you already mentioned maps kind of early on. And uh, I I would say that one could really spend an entire day just paging through the book and exploring the maps alone. Uh, It's, it's a book worth having in your hands uh, just to be able to go through that. And uh, some of them are really extraordinary, I think. But, uh, and, and I know you have um, some, you, you do some things with maps online as well. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain the role that these maps play in your argumentation and how you found so many of them. And I also noticed that you used uh, GIS to, I believe, to create uh, some of your own maps. So uh, I just wanted to let you comment uh, on the maps a, a little bit. Well, thank you. Uh, I also am very glad you liked uh, the maps because they are very important to me. They're they're important to the the starting point, the conception um, of the uh, of the project, uh, which begins around fifteen hundred because of that map. And also for me, that was the first time we have an accurate scaled representation. Uh, of Germany as a space. So when I began the work, I wanted to have that be a central focus. Um, and it it has that focus, but it's not a history of the mapping of Germany either. Um, 
And that has to do for me with this argument about epistemology, the different ways of apprehending nationness, what is central to a later period, what is central to an earlier period. So the maps really got me going and I followed them uh, throughout, though, again, it's not a history of the mapping of Germany as such. Now, I don't know if you know, but I am a collector of maps. Um, and while some other people might spend money on fancy cars, that's not where <laughs> my money goes. Um, and some of those maps, not, not some of the more, most remarkable, but some of them are actually from my own collection here. But uh, that's a little bit of an expensive undertaking. And so at some point, I started to think, well, I can't buy these maps, so um, I'm going to start making them. Um, also, some maps didn't map what I wanted. Uh, and so that's what turned me uh, to ArcGIS and uh, digital cartography. That, too, has been a long and instructive road for me, long because uh, when I started it, there were not many people doing it. Uh, ArcGIS was uh it's changed in the meanwhile but arcgis was one of the more complicated ways to do this so i spent a lot of time uh in my study pulling my hair out of my head uh trying to figure out <laughs> how this all works but it was instructive to me in more than a technical sense it was also instructive to me because the way i do these maps especially for example maps of cities or uh the early maps of uh, ge uh the text-based geographies of Germany, I would map them out um, on a map or the maps of, of all the towns and cities in Marianne. Um, the way I did this was to get those towns and their coordinates onto a, uh, an Excel sheet, basically, and then upload the Excel sheet, do labeling and so on. Um, but that work with the Excel sheet was actually quite important for me because it made me look at every last place. It made me kind of focus in on the limit cases. Um, was this town a border town or not a border town? You can be um, abstract about porous borders in the early modern period, but then suddenly you're confronted with text. Sometimes that text says this was the border. Um, or sometimes the text said, some people think, that Trier belongs to France and other people think it belongs to Germany. So you, you, get, you get a different um, sensibility about the individual places than I was used to having as a historian who um, either had written about, uh, you know, the nation, let's say in my first book, uh, Nationalism and Religious Conflict in Germany, um, or a single town like Konitz um, in the Butcher's Tale, because here you have to look at the pattern. So the GIS mapping uh, and how it's changed me as a historian is a very important part of this, this book, at least it is for me. Um, so I, I'd like to get into some of the um, you know sections of the book. And I think we should... Uh, discuss to start out uh, the early modern period that, that you included in the book. And 
So one thing I really enjoyed about the narrative, both in the early modern period, but also throughout, is that you don't only treat the major figures. You do treat them like in the early modern era, you talk about Erasmus and Martin Luther, but you also included very important figures, but figures who are sometimes lesser known. Uh, And in this case, they were intellectuals during the Reformation. Uh, So I just picked one out. (laughs) Um, There were many, but I thought uh, I, you know, one example is I, I liked how you analyzed the work of the humanist Sebastian Munster, mm-hmm. and you used him to illustrate kind of how the German nation was understood during the 1500s. So I was wondering if you could talk about just taking him as an example and how, uh, you know, uh, how he represented how, how the nation was viewed uh, during the 1500s. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you focus on Munster. Munster has become a real favorite of mine. I, I, I collect facsimile works, <laughs> reprints of, of his cosmographia. Um, uh, the mo- the full one, uh, being in 1550, uh, the first really full one, uh, and then subsequent editions thereafter. I became fascinated with him for a number of reasons. And one is that my first, uh, knowledge about him actually had to do with, my understanding of the history of uh, Judaism and anti-Semitism. So he was a, a leading Hebrew scholar in his day, and that's what he was actually known for. But later in his life, he wrote this, um, not wrote is not quite right. He, yes, he did write it, but he had a lot of work help. So he corresponded with all these humanists um, in Germany and elsewhere and put together this description of the world. So it seems like the opposite of nation thinking at some level. But in this roughly 1,200-page book, um, about roughly 600 pages are devoted to Germany. As the French uh, philosopher of sovereignty, Jean Baudin, pointed out and called it not so much a cosmographia as a gamanographia. And it indeed started out like that. It indeed started out with as as the more narrow project of describing describing Germany. And so I and it would have been the most ambitious attempt to do so. There had been attempts prior to him, Conrad Seltis, for example. Uh, but this was the first one that really full blown told you about the German nation. And it told you about it with a combination of texts and maps and city views and interest, uh, yes, in the history of the place, but also in what was there, the castles, what rivers went through the uh, town or city, um, churches. So I really came to think that this understanding of place and later of space as something which was really situated was very much the beginning of a very new, well, not quite the beginning, but first flowering of a very new way of seeing a nation. And so I spent a lot of time uh, with Sebastian Münster, as I did with some other, <laughs> as you point out, less well-known known figures. I will also admit a little bit that anyone from the modern period going to the early modern period uh, spends <laughs> some of his or her time being completely daunted by the, the shelves and shelves of literature on the Reformation itself, so that uh, there was a sense in which focusing 
on the um, on these early geographers was a way to uh, lessen my reading list. <laughs> <laughs> um, sounds like a good strategy. Uh, so I want to move forward into the 18th century. And uh, in this section of the book, um, you show some development from Munster's vision of the nation. Um, and as you say, people began to uh, know and experience uh, Germany differently. Uh, and not just because the maps became more precise, although that was a part of it, uh, according to your, to your book. But it is in this section uh, of the book where you explore how a deeper sense of one's nation emerged from the threats of partition that loomed during the 1700s. However, um, the nations that many of the elites you write about uh, constructed were actually territorial states, such as Prussia or Bavaria or Württemberg. And I sensed here a thread that you kind of trace a little bit through the book, where you often point out some of the vastly different trajectories that could have been in store for Central Europe, other than the, uh, the one that the, the actual trajectory that it took. Um, and at certain points, you even imagine so-called ahistorical scenarios, right, where these mid-sized German states uh, become what many of the historical subjects of the 18th century actually expected them to become. So uh, I was wondering if you could uh, expand on this aspect of the book a little bit. Well, thank you for asking me about it. I, I think it's a very important part of the book, at least in, my, in terms of my own thinking. Um, it's the only part of those two chapters that you, or two points that you raise. These are the only two chapters where um, I narrate a development um, that is synchronous happening at the same time along two different chapters. And um, so I... I think of that as, in some ways, two developments. The one development being the, the sort of state beginning to form a nation, as you pointed out, um, people experiencing it more directly as such. And the other development, uh, and a kind of internalization of nation feeling um, that happens uh, at the same time. The question about the and I'm going to come back to this, but the question of the of of those counterfactual maps and me pointing out that people at the time actually expected um, that space called uh, you know, Germany or Central Germany to emerge as a space of territorial states um, where many of the speakers would have been German. Um, but they might have been nation states or, or territorial states, who knows what we would have called them, um, middle-sized states, uh, that that was part of what Reinhard Kozelik would call the horizon of expectations. And that whole concept about the horizon of expectations, especially during these great turning points, is really was really important to this whole book because when you do a 500-year history, uh, the great enemy that you have is teleology, right? You really don't want uh, to write history backwards. And I, I would say that, that I was, to some extent, criticized 
for precisely this in my book, Continuities. I, I don't agree with all of the criticisms, but I see how I created the opening. And in this book, I didn't want to create that opening. I wanted readers to understand that when you're in the late 18th century, you're in that century within the expectation of horizons, within the epistemology, how people thought of it as the time of the late 18th century. So those chapters are are really important. Um, and I do think that it was a likely outcome. Um, and people thought of this until the late 18th, uh, deep into the 19th century, that different states might become their own territories. In South America, for example, it's completely the case that that um, Spanish-speaking countries are next to Spanish-speaking countries for a large part of the U.S.-Canada border. Um, actually, for almost all of it, all of it uh, it's English speakers and English speakers. And so, so this notion, the 19th century notion that um, states have to encompass a, a language group um, was not something that one could easily uh, project back onto the 18th century. And I actually don't think that they really did it. So um, I found no uh, projected futures in the late 18th century in Germany that imagined um, Germany 50 years hence as a Holy Roman Empire well-reformed. And I know that argues against a certain historical school, uh, but that's how I decided to 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 pursue it. Um, the other thing to say is that both in both cases, both the internalization um, through literature, that's why I talk about Herder and Goethe, uh, but also through um, the counting people, um, the state seeing like a state. Those both brought about a significant reorientation, a very different re uh, state of things than what I was looking at when I was reading Sebastian Münster. Um, so I, moving forward again uh, through this chronological period, um, I enjoyed how you started the chapter about the French Revolution and Napoleon with uh, Madame de Stal and her writings about Germany in the early 19th century. And what was interesting was that this was a period where she viewed France as a place that had fanatical nationalism and Germans she viewed as being more pacific uh, or more pacifist. And you uh, do an interesting job of in some ways, emphasizing, right, this notion of uh, Germans as pacifists or at least uh, valuing peace on some level um, or fitting in, I guess, to what uh, Madame de Stahl was, was writing. But you also find things that she overlooked, uh, and particularly a lot of the young romantic thinkers of the early 19th century. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about this period um, that was so tumultuous uh, in the late 1790s and early uh, 1800s and how it changed or didn't change German notions of the nation. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. First, I want to uh, 
say to the listeners, if you are interested in German studies, uh, de l'Allemagne is a much ignored uh, or often ignored wonderful, wonderful read. Uh, so if you're interested in that period, it's just a great book. And I really fell in love with it. Um, but what's, what also became interesting to me is that the Germany she described, uh, you know, the Pacific uh, Germany of the century of the 1790s was not the Germany that existed when the book was finally published. It was censored by Napoleon's. Uh, in 1814, and so it's what's what's important is that that for me was that that book straddled uh, two ways of thinking about Germany while actually only reporting on one. But what's also interesting is when she said Germany is Pacific, it she that was a criticism for her because she wanted. Germany to do something about Napoleon. I mean, he, you know, she thought that Napoleon had made her country, France, into the sort of Roman Empire of the modern age. And there was much that she thought should be resisted. And she thought that Germans had a lack of character because they couldn't get their armies together. And, well, she was kind of right about that. Um, you know, Germany was actually... Um, uh, invaded and lost the Rhineland. Um, uh, there were French troops in South Germany and eventually in Prussia. And um, she was right that the North Germans didn't much care that the that there were Napoleonic troops in South Germany and the South Germany Germans didn't much care that the Rhineland had been split apart. Sure, a few people did, but no, no, that early response was not the kind of response that you would expect if a kind of modern nation state had been, had had foreign troops on it. So um, I think that, so it, it, it really, she focused on that, in that moment. But of course, this is also the moment in which uh, real German nationalism, no holds bar, uh, nationalism defined by deep emotions, defined by the emotions of love and hate, love for one's country, hate for the uh, uh, foreigners, for the other side. That's the time that this, in my opinion, first comes together. So Madame de Stahl is, is that person who, who bridges this. And uh, that coming together of nationalism, um, and not just, I'm proud of my country, not just nationhood, but real nationalism as a transformative vision. Um, this happens at the very beginning of the 19th century. At least it does in my book. I realize there are other historians who make different arguments. Um, but this is the way I, I see it. And the early 19th century um, uh, is the time for me that this that this happens and so it's very important to look at the precise ways that it comes comes together and madame de Stahl had a had a very good uh, sensibility about that right and uh as we uh skip through time here uh <laughs> we'll uh jump a little bit forward uh, to your treatment of German unification. Uh, 
And that obviously seems like a really important movement in a book about the German nation or nationalism, how, you know, however, uh, looking at both of those things. And you also spend a lot of time looking at the early years of the uh, Imperial German uh, state. So uh, one thing that really struck me is you make a distinction between national activists uh, whom you feel have been well-researched, and I think anyone in the field of German studies would agree, uh, and uh, nationhood, which is what your chapter chapters tend to emphasize a little bit more. Uh, as I was reading, I was wondering um, how this assertion uh, uh, played into your case about German nationalism maybe arriving rather later than some people would think. And although this was an age of nationalists and a unified German state, and you talk a lot about, you know, uh, Heinrich von Treitschke in that regard, but on the other hand, national identity, you talk about as something that's still being worked out, and particularly in material culture. So uh, your examination of monuments, postcards, images of the Kaiser, uh, and even, I have to say, this uh, incredible picture of your own great-grandfather's regimental Stein uh, made it into the book. Um, so yeah, I guess I'd be curious to hear you talk about how you think you're redefining the era of the Kaiserreich uh, with this section of the study. Well, thank you. That's a great question. I, uh, I have to admit that, you know, as you know, my, my early career was firmly lodged in the Kaiserreich in the imperial period. <laughs> um, my first book on religious conflict, you know, also the, uh, the book, the Butcher's Tale was uh, firmly in that period as well. And I really despaired in this book because I felt for a long while that precisely in this period, I didn't have very much that was original. <laughs> and I was pulling my hair out of my head because I said, I mean, I, why is this the case? And, and, um, and I realized that I myself belong to those generations of, of historians who contributed uh, so much to understanding the um, the national activists, as Peter Judson uh, calls them, um, and I call them that, following Peter Judson, um, and that in making a kind of case uh, for the profound their profound impact and seeing um, Imperial Germany as utterly saturated with precisely that kind of nationalism. So it's when I began to work the material culture angle more closely that I began to see something that gave me a way to um, start thinking differently than I had before. I'm, I know that there are other people out there who also have thought along these lines. So I'm not claiming you know, originality, like complete originality, but I am. I will claim that I taught myself something. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and, and this was that a lot of those products, um, uh, the Kriegerdenkmale, you know, the, the uh, war monuments, for example, um, and and my grandfather's uh, reservist Stein and his pipe, which didn't get into the book, and all of these kinds of things, had these 
little phrases and you know they were always about being loyal and you know um brave but they were never about those damn french or anything like this um even though that was the last person one you know germans had fought a war against not the last person the last country uh so i actually found in the material culture even in bismarck uh you know amulets and all of that i i found very little that i would categorize as aggressive so for me it's it it became there, there this distinction came into my mind about the kind of nationalism that I always knew about and studied. And, you know, a lot of readers will have, uh, or listeners will have uh, read about Heinrich von Treitschke. But it became for me that kind of uh, tension between that and this, uh, what I call following Michael Billings, uh, banal nationalism, where it's nationalism it makes you proud of your country. It makes you proud to be part of it. Um, but it's, and, and you can say that that's certainly because they had this, they all uh, marched to war dutifully in 1914. But it wasn't necessarily the aggressive nationalism that I had long come to associate with uh, my own mind uh, with nationalism uh, in the Kaiserreich. So I uh, began to see the tension. Um, between that sort of Treischke nationalism uh, and Heinrich Klaas nationalism and a different kind uh, in ways that were much more clear, uh, at least to me. Um, so, yeah. Great. And uh, yeah, I mean, one part of the, just your comments reminded me of this, but one part of the book that really struck me was when uh, you, you talked about how Heinrich Klaas became the kind of fanatical nationalist that Madame uh, de Stahl had uh, accused the French of being in the early early nineteenth century. But yeah. uh, <laughs> um, that, that was a Danish journalist who made that uh, parallel. So again, it's not me, but were, uh, yeah. So, anyways, George Brandeis, um, a wonderful person to read, by the way, Georg Brandeis. Um, okay. In any case, uh, I want to move on to the immediate post World War One period, um, and that just seems to be very central to your narrative. Because um, if I understood correctly, this is when you uh, really contend that nationalism became a, a, a truly central ideology. And so, one there, there are multiple ways that that you could talk about this, and you certainly don't have to take my way if you don't want to. But uh, something I found kind of interesting was how you took a lot of this latest research that's been done um, on Adolf Hitler as a way to, in some ways, reinforce this chronology. And 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 what I mean is, you you talk about how it's been, I guess, discovered or uh, uh, argued that Hitler's own radicalization uh, was really at the very outset of the Weimar era more than anything. Uh, So by including that, I thought that you contribute to this larger notion of domestic turmoil during the the early 20s as a a very defining moment. So are you, I was wondering if you could discuss how you frame um, this shift that you you say occurred uh, in the aftermath of World War I. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, you know, I will say, and it's probably true for many others as well, is that the new research on 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 Hitler um, uh, was very important to me. I mean, I, when I sat down, I really sat down with the uh, the the new kritische, uh, the critical edition of Mein Kampf that was done at the Institute für Zeitgeschichte in, in the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich. Uh, and that book, you know, serious historians of Germany should really sit down with it if they haven't, because it is full with remarkable annotations. Um, and that book and the work of scholars like Weber basically showed me that uh, the transition, even for someone like him, um, occurs or at least we have documentation for it, occurs in the uh, early Weimar Republic. Um, it occurs in uh, a situation of extreme flux. It occurs in the shadow of real Bolshevist revolutions, um, the real threat of, of the Soviet Union, um, the real threat of, of communism, of, of unemployment. And very important to me, and this whole conception of this section that goes from 1914 to 1945, the centrality of figuring out what the great slaughter, the great sacrifice was good for. I think when any country fights a, a war of this dimension, um, the, the reigning question of the polity thereafter is to what end did we... Did we do that? Uh, what was the sacrifice for after all? And following some other scholars, I came to see Weimar as not so much a pre-Third uh, Reich polity and not even so much, one might say, as, um, as, as, a, as a space and time that historians look at for itself, uh, but much more a a polity uh, that existed in the shadow of that war and a war that needed to be uh, justified, mourned, worked through, um, and all of that. And what Hitler found, uh, talking to uh, very angry uh, former soldiers, not all of them were angry, but the ones he was talking to, um, was a great deal of resentment about the peace, um, about demobilization, about unemployment, and so on. And he became a person with an Ide fix in conversation uh, with this, these people, even though he was the one making the speeches. The others were the ones who were clapping and listening. And he had a, a kind of instinctive relationship to, to an audience. And, you know, he probably came to realize that certain things had a certain play with them, uh, among them uh, anti-Semitism. So to me, it's, it's in early Weimar that this radical nationalism, revanchist nationalism, full-blown aggressive uh, nationalism comes together with anti-Semitism in a kind of nationalism that is based on various kinds of sacrifice ideologies. One sacrifice ideology is you fight and die for your country. That's the old one, but now it's in a way on steroids and, it, and it's for the masses and not for the, the uh, elite. But also it, 
that social Darwinist um, create a pure country. In order to do that, you have to sacrifice groups within the nation. So, so Hitler to me became an avenue to uh, bind that period un- under a kind of conceptual rubric uh, around the term opfer or sacrifice. Well, I think that that answer there uh, offers a good uh, segue into my next question. And that is, I think that um, the book depicts uh, sort of the radical racial anti-Semitism of Third Reich as uh, a break with the past, that it was not a, you say at one point, it's not a revival of a past racial order, but instead a new one uh, that spread you know, to so many aspects of life through exclusionary policies uh, meant to create distance between Jews and non-Jews. So how does, um, I, I guess I'm, I'd be curious to hear how you think um, the long overview that um, precedes uh, the, the sections you write about the Third Reich and the Holocaust, which are, um, you know, a, a quite extensive part of the book in their own right, uh, but how does this long overview help us to understand uh, uh, Nazi anti-Semitism and the Holocaust in a new light and viewing it as a break with the past? Well, everything is both both has elements of the earlier and can be a break at the same time. I don't want to stop there because that's an easy way out. What I want to say is that what is different about the Nazis in power with respect to um, uh, previous forms of or earlier forms of anti-Semitism is they are not, they're not merely nostalgic for an older order or anything like this. They come to power in an advanced industrial country in which Germans and Jews, uh, even there, that's already, let me re-say that, in which non-Jewish and Jewish Germans are highly integrated. Um, Major cities have mixed marriage or interfaith marriage rates of in the 30 uh, percentiles. Um, There are, neighborhoods are often integrated in, in big cities. So it's a highly integrated uh, society. In that context, their reigning ideology is not extermination, but it is. Uh, and it's not even so it's not even distance. It's the Jews should be kicked out. Um, and that's not like in the early modern period where Jews live in a a ghetto, for example, or a, a very distinct part of town. This is a f- fairly fully integrated society, which is torn apart, in which the legislation undoes what is already there. It's a transformative vision of racial relations. And this is why I distinguish it from a nostalgia for an earlier time. This was the remaking into a different kind of society. Um, And in that sense, I think it very much is uh, a break 
for the past, from the past. And it very much does begin to put them into a logic that is in, initially about expulsion, because I do think that that from 33 on was the end game for leading uh, ideologists in power in the Third Reich, even if not all Nazi party members held that as the end game or thought that was the end game. Uh, I do think it is for for quite some a significant core. Uh, so, and that that end game leads in the context of war in which Nazi ideology comes together with a very different um, hyper-nationalist, um, but also an expansive nationalist understanding of Germany's place in the world. There's no way to do that except in Hitler's mind, uh, but also in other people's minds, to move east, to uh, not move east, that's a terrible uh, choice of words, to ex- militarily expand towards the east, occupy the east. That, of course, means to occupy, to shift Germany into uh, lands which have, at, you know, at that point, still the majority of the world's Jews. And these things come together. But it's a, um, it's a, uh, it's a, it's, it's a significant step away from even, I would say, imperial German uh, nationalism. If I, I mentioned this already in my continuities book, and I pointed out again that, that someone like Heinrich Klaas raises the possibility of ethnic expulsion already before World War I in 1912, but he steps back from it, um, thinking this is actually barbaric. This is a step we don't want to take. But in World War I already, he's already ready to take it. And all of this, and by the Third Reich, this becomes a, a, a standard way of thinking about what one can do with people. So to me, it's really, it really does, it really is, a uh, qualitatively new um, phenomenon. So, um, although you have uh, a very extensive uh, section on the post-45 era, I think I need to uh, fast forward us in our trip through German chronology to the present (laughs) uh, for the sake of time in the interview. And, I thought our audience might be interested to hear you talk about how you think Germans understand their nation and nationalism today in the 21st century, which of course you really stopped the book right around the year 2000 or so, or early 21st century, so to speak. But um, I was wondering if you could comment on uh, Germany today. Well, thank you. I, I did stop the uh, the book in two thousand, and uh, but my my editor Bob Weil uh, asked me to write an epilogue, so I'm very glad I did because it forced me to read the literature, you know, beyond reading newspapers, but to really read the literature on uh, post two thousand Germany in a more uh, serious way than I had. Um, I do make an argument uh, here, and this is that if you think about the the book or nation with respect to nationalism as something which has distinct phases, I do think 
that there is something that collapses with the Third Reich. It's not a clean slate. It's not a Stunde Null, any of that stuff. But I do think that one of the great accomplishments of the Federal Republic is to enter into a serious dialogue with its past, to not abandon the nation, but to think about the nation, their own nation, in ways that are not nationalist, defining nationalist now in a way that the early 20th century would have taken for granted. Um, without that kind of chauvinism, without that kind of uh, aggression, and so on. Now, obviously, I'm talking about a portion of Germany. Obviously, there is a what some are calling a new nationalism. I'm happy with that term. Um, I do distinguish it from Nazi nationalism. And I don't just dis distinguish it in terms of these are different things with different ideas. I also think that the new uh, populist authoritarianism or populist nationalism, however you want to call it, is in its morphology very different than uh, what existed in the Third Reich, in part because Germany is a very different place, in part because the, the whole context uh, of Germany is very different, in part because nationalists who are populist nationalists face in very many ways a more hostile environment in Germany than they do in, in some other places. And that has to do with the facing of the past. So my plaidoyer, in a way, in the epilogue is to see the nationalism of today, um, the right-wing uh, nationalism that we see in Germany, as part and parcel of a more global uh, populist uh, mo moment, I hope it's a moment, or populist authoritarianism, and to treat it more in that context than in the context of having a direct continuity with the Third Reich. I'm also, I'm also a person who's confident in uh, the Federal Republic, and so I see... Um, the Federal Republic as having uh, more reserves even than the United States in dealing um, with this kind of new nationalism. Well, uh, at this point, we've really taken up a tremendous amount of your time, Helmut, and I do want to end the interview with uh, a very traditional New Books Network final question, and that is... Uh, now that you've completed this extensive project, what are you working on now? And I understand that this very traditional question takes on a new meaning during this very tragic and disruptive pandemic. So you, your answer might be that research isn't possible right now, but I would like to hear about uh, what, you're, what you're working on or what you're thinking about working on at this point. Well, thank you. Um, well, I, I actually, after I, you can imagine if after you work on a book for basically a decade, uh, you want to really do something else. And so I threw myself uh, into a, a project about how small town Germany uh, faced its past. Um, and this grew out of work on the post-war period that I did for this book, uh, where I plotted out uh, how, and the RTIS, where I plotted out all the small towns that had, had where there was... Uh, uh, the November pogrom or Kristallnacht. Um, and there are some 1,200 of them, depends on counting. Um, but I 
know that in, in the history, the sort of thinking about uh, how Germany faces its past, it's very oriented towards the big cities, how Munich faced its past, how Berlin did. It's very oriented towards um, uh, intellectuals. In a way, I, I very much appreciate the new book uh, by uh, Susan Nyman, but I th also think that um, this book is centered on large cities and uh, intellectuals. And I think that the small town has uh, some very different stories to tell us. So I just ask, you know, basic historical questions of uh, when did they do this? When did they face uh, their past? Um, which ones did, you know, uh, why, when, um, who was involved in it? It's a whole different set of actors. You know, you're looking at school teachers, archivists. Um, I spend a lot of time with retired people in this project, so I'm really liking this. Um, and But there are a few things that are already emerging that are really interesting to me. Uh, and one of them is how much help uh, these small towns got uh, among from lots of sources, but one important source are Jews who returned to their own uh, small town. So I'm I'm working this, but unfortunately, because of COVID, I had to stop that um, stop that work uh, because I couldn't get to the the two great libraries that I was using. That's the Klau Library in, at the Hebrew Union College in uh, Cincinnati, um, and the uh, Germania Judaica in Cologne. And uh, I'm waiting for them to open up and for Germany to let Americans back in. Um, and uh, so right now I'm doing uh, some other kinds of work, like writing shorter essays, and I'm doing some digital mapping. I'm presenting uh, some of those maps in part of this wonderful new um, project, the, the German Studies uh, Collaborium, uh, which is a great resources for uh, teachers of German studies. And so I'm doing that kind of work until I uh, can get back to this uh, project on how German small towns face their past. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually glad you mentioned the German Studies uh, Collaboratory uh, uh, for any listeners who are instructors who don't know about it, it's uh, truly a great resource right now. I uh, I've, I'm, know I'm using a couple things from there in my classes this fall. So um, those uh, projects sound great. And uh, whenever you get to writing the next book, uh, hopefully we can have you on the New Books Network once again. So um, thanks for giving us your time today, Helmut, and thanks for being on the show. It was my great pleasure. Thank you, Michael. So to our listeners, you have been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Helmut Walzer-Smith. We discussed his recent book, Germany, A Nation in Its Time, published with Live Right Publishing Corporation in 2020. I hope that all of our listeners are as well as can be expected. Stay healthy. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you continue to listen.